Hi, Mason, and this is going to be an absolute pleasure. I am delighted to be joined by my longtime friend and musician, Miss Denise Johnson. Morning, Denise. Good morning, Asan. How are you? I'm all right, you know. I'm all right. How are you? I'm I'm pretty good. We've just spent an hour before the interview catching up. Which, uh, <laughs> we're we're which now is... talking like we've not been speaking for an hour before this. I know. I know. No, it's. Uh, I'm very well. I'm very well. All the better for uh, for hearing your lovely voice. Um, thank you for doing this first and foremost. Oh, you're so welcome. Do you know what? It's just nice to be asked by something connected to the team I actually love you know, to do something. Blows my mind. Know... Blows my mind that nobody has come to you before us but i'm kind of delighted that we're the first city related media that have uh that have come to you i think that's uh quite fitting and it's probably a good way to start actually because correct me if i'm wrong but you were born in hume weren't you yes well when you say born i was born in withington in withington hospital right um but i grew up in hume you grew up in hume so what's your kind of earliest city stroke football memories um, it's re- it's really weird because I can't remember exact dates or anything, mm. right? Just know that I was always into sports. Um, I was always in the park playing football with the boys. Um, I was a proper tomboy. Um, and that I became a blue because I couldn't stand the colour red. <laughs> I thought it was just, the colour was just too violent, right? <laughs> I couldn't stand looking at it. Um, so it had to be obviously the cool, calm class of sky blue that drew me in, you know? Beautiful. Um, Do you remember your first game at Main Road by any chance? I do. Um, And it was much, much later because as a kid, uh, my mum, she would never let us go to a football match Mm. as a kid. Uh, Number one, I'm a girl. Well, I'm I'm a a half boy and half girl as far as I'm concerned because I'm a tomboy. Uh, No, you're not going. And obviously because of um, racial tension, Around yeah. the time having this little black kid and a girl be amongst the terraces. I mean, it's not like it is now where people sit down. There's still a load of shouting and swearing and and going on with kids around people. But back then, it, it, it was worse. It was much worse. Mm. Um, she, and she didn't want me in that environment. So I never went to a football match. And it then kind of made me not want to go to a football match. I was I was quite content listening to it on the radio. Wow. With one earpiece in. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still do sometimes. Uh, just for the, just like throw me back to my childhood, you know. Um but yeah, so I, so my first football match was actually in ninety eight. Wow. So e- division exactly. one? Division two? No, not even that. The Reggae Boys, when they came to Manchester, yeah, and they came to Main Road, right, for the friendly against Man City. Wow! I know. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, what do you make of of uh, City's journey? Like, if you kind of if you look at our nadir in the kind of late nineties, and and you look at where we find ourselves today, um, it's kind of a I want to say rags to riches story, but you know what I mean. Like it's I know, yeah. for us, like for 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 those of us who remember the eighties, the nineties. How do you feel you know, about it all? Is it bittersweet in any way? Is there a, it? Do you do you have this kind of longing nostalgia for a simpler time, or do you view this as you know the revenge we always deserved? Well, 
it's to say it's been a roller coaster is an understatement right this man city journey it's been absolutely amazing um this team that we have now uh, they're set in legend they're set in stone um it has been golden um where and especially obviously for where we are now um but we're not bitter and i think being to me anyway i'm the kind of city fan whereby yeah when united were cruising high and winning well they won one treble right but they make it like they've won millions um I, I didn't feel bitter it was just like well they've won that you know our time will come and that time is now yeah. and it's absolutely amazing just the pride that we all have and I know you're the same with with the way this team has just risen and it looks like it's going to continue to rise, especially with these two new signings as well. It's been absolutely amazing. And I've loved every moment, even the heartache. I've not loved the heartache, obviously, but that's life. You mm. pick yourself up and you carry on and you, you know, you try and do better next time. And that's what's happened with this team. Mm. Do the, um, does any of the ownership stuff very, very, very briefly, does any of the ownership stuff bother you? I mean, of, of course it does. And I've spoken out about it as well because, you know, especially on Twitter, you get people saying, well, how can we never speak out about, you know, your owners? And and it's like, well, I have spoken out about them. Um, who wants to know that their team um, has owners where in that country human rights aren't respected and, mm. you know, homo, homo, you know, gay people are treated in a, in a disgraceful way, women are treated in a disgraceful way, journalists are treated in a disgraceful way. Anyone wanting to say anything uh, of any good for humanity is treated in a despicable way. Of course, it's not great. Do you know what I mean? But what am I supposed to stop supporting Man City? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think <clears throat> since I was a kid, I think I think that's where this the separation occurs, really, doesn't it? Because we can't yeah. control, you know. It, it, if you look hard enough, my my feeling on this has always been it, it doesn't matter whether you're Shape Mansour or you're the fella who owns Liverpool. If you look hard enough at people that have accumulated that kind of wealth, they've probably trampled on a lot of human rights to get there. It's just, it's just the nature of that kind of wealth. And there's a yeah. certain kind of naivete in, in being like, my billionaire is all yeah. right, yeah? But exactly. you're a billionaire, isn't it? It's like yeah. we we the the great unwashed should be smart enough to know all billionaires are the same, mate. Do you know what yeah, I mean? They all exactly. have dinner with each other, and I, you know, we it just it is it literally it it, it is what it is. So yeah, well, that's it, quite, cool. well, just to add on to that, so that so a team owned by a British billionaire, what? So are we supposed to hate that British football team now because? Um, of the, of the human rights that have been completely flouted by the British government. Totally, totally. I mean, this is the thing. Like, there's a when you. When, I mean, look, it's a rabbit hole that we could go down, but very, very, exactly. very briefly. Yeah, super briefly, yeah. right? Yeah. So, if you want to talk about which they, which the media are talking about, the war in Yemen and the um, Abu Dhabi's involvement in the war in Yemen. Yeah. Why aren't we talking about where the arms? Are coming from? Why aren't we talking about who's financing these wars? Why aren't we talking about British involvement or the American involvement? It's very, very complicated, and you really shouldn't bring politics into football in that way unless you're a expert 
But I imagine if yeah. you're an expert, you're not going to bring football into it because you're going to go, in the end, they're just not connected. You know, exactly. that that's that thing over there. And this is this thing over here. It's like lots of Arabs, wealthy, you know, regimes, they own lots of businesses, whether it be, you know, casinos in Vegas or Man City or Ferrari or whatever it is. Yeah. We're not boycotting all of those things. So I don't see why we should be boycotting City. But No. Yeah. Listen, um, now... I know we that we're a city pod. But let me just add, we should still speak out about it. We shouldn't be quiet. No, absolutely should, not. You know what I mean, absolutely. Like, listen, I think that I think that um, where I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, I think that in terms of speaking out, I think it's important to speak out. But I think it's also yeah. important to speak out from a position of to educate yourself of knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that I think that part of the social media phenomenon is that very, very complex issues are being reduced to 240 characters and you just can't do that. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, that's probably why I avoid all politics on social media because I'm just like, <laughs> I'm not going to discuss Israel and Palestine yeah. on, you know, I can't do it in 240 yeah. characters. I'm no, not going to no. discuss the war in Yemen in 240 characters. I'm not going to discuss the American prison system in 240 characters. It's just yeah. Not possible. Um, but look, now I know we're a city podcast, but I also know that you're a Manchester music royalty and a legend. So that's really what we want to talk about, mate. We, we've done city in, in seven or eight minutes. We, <laughs> what we really want to talk about is your career. So okay. my, my first question, because I realized that I don't know this. Yeah. And that is, when did you fall in love with singing? You know what? I've, I can always remember singing as a kid, like a really young child. Um, I remember hearing the soundtrack to The Sound of Music for the first time, mm. uh, one of the many records that my mum owned. And I was fascinated by the whole album, especially one track called The Lonely Goat Herd. Um, and I don't know if it was the yodeling, I'm, I don't know, but something about that song and that mm. album just sucked me in, just the noises. And so from then on, I just always sang. I'd sing myself to sleep. I mean, as I got older, as an older child, say like, I don't know, 10, 12 sort of thing, I'd sing myself to sleep every night so much to my mum's absolute fury. You know, she's trying to watch Coronation Street in the next room and I'm supposed to be asleep and I'm singing at the top of my head the latest chart song that I've just learned or something yeah. and so she's so she's obviously come in and said you know shut up just shut up and go to sleep so then I've tried to sing it really quietly <laughs> under my breath <laughs> you know I just always sang at school the teachers hated me and, and our little group of you know kids that just sang in class mm. there's a teacher there trying to teach us physics and we're singing the soundtrack from Greece something you did, know did you think it was going to be your career so early on as well or did that come later I never ever thought that I remember leaving school um because I stayed on for a year um mm. in sixth form and uh at the end of the year we all sign each other's folders you know or, yeah, yeah I remember did you know so and I found mine a couple of months ago and no. in mine I swear to god it says I don't believe in God. I swear to Denzel, right? But it's just a habit <laughs> saying God, right? I swear to Denzel Washington, right? That in mine, every nearly everyone has written K 
can't wait to see you on top of the pop. This is at 16. Can't wait to see you on top of the pops or, or the program of the time. Oh, um, we'll see you on This Is Your Life. <laughs> so your friends knew. Well, they, because I sang all the time, it's just, I don't know that they knew, but it was like a, not a joke, but a wish, I suppose a wish for your friend, mm. you know, and it, just to look back on that and to have been on top of the pops like two times, it's just the weirdest thing. Is that it? You only did Top of the Pops twice? I, th- I think so, yeah, with Primal Scream. Mate, I reckon I reckon that if you uh, if you did an itinerary, I reckon you'd probably find you did it more than twice. I didn't. I'm sure I only did it twice. I know I missed out on it once with uh, my own um, single, Rays of the Rising Sun. Mm. But, but the person I missed out, I, th- I, was, I think I was about 37 in the charts or something, mm. and I missed out to Carleen Anderson, which I have absolutely no problem with because she's amazing. So, <laughs> so she got chosen instead of me. But talking about chart positions, I remember when Primal Scream were at 68 mm. in the charts, and we did and we did top of the pops. Really? So it's about yeah. So it's about who you know. Wow. You know. Um, how did you? So how did you make that sort of shift from kind of leaving sixth form and you know singing a lot? How do you? How do you end up before we even get to Primal Scream? What are your first steps in terms of singing semi-professionally, if that's the way you want to call it? Well, I suppose I remember seeing something on TV, um, I think Grenada Reports or something, and it was Lisa Stansfield. And she just won this competition uh, that she'd sung at, at some, I think it was The Willows, in Newton, The Willows, I think it was called, I don't even know if it still exists or something. Mm, it does ring a bell, and, that. Yeah, and I was like, wow. So she entered a competition. I just, right, I didn't care how I did it, well, I did, but I just know I wanted to sing. That's yeah. all it was. I didn't want to be famous. I just want to sing, right? And there's something about a voice being amplified that excites me. I love how it sounds coming out of speakers. Mm. That's what I'm into, right? Um, so I remember going to – so I remember going this this place would do it, still doing auditions and stuff years later, um, and I went to an audition, sang – a song from uh it was i don't i don't know how to love him mary magdalene uh from jesus christ superstar yeah <clears throat> and i remember finishing the song and the guy said is that the kind of song that you love to do <laughs> so, <laughs> so i was like <laughs> yeah all right love you stick to ballads then yeah next oh my god and it was like the shame but the shame came even uh, well, not shame. Uh, the next audition I did, I was um, at the Ritz. Basically, we were doing. Uh, I was doing. A, I was part of a fashion show, and me and this other girl, we weren't getting picked. And basically, I saw a band on the stage. And they looked like they were rehearsing or something. So I went over and said, "What's going on here?" Well, we're um, auditioning for new singers for a new band that we're putting together. And I was like, oh, wow. They said, why are you interested? I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, okay. I never sung anywhere in my life. I don't even know. I don't know what possessed me, Asan. I have no idea. Um, the exuberance this, of youth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but this fashion show that I was doing at the time in the Ritz, we weren't getting picked for anything. So that's why my interest then went over to, you know, ask about what was going on. And this manager comes over to me and he was one of those, you know, proper, if you had to draw a manager, from a mecca leisure venue 
in Manchester at the time, it would look like this guy. And he just basically said, well, if you sing as good as you look, you're in. <laughs> right? So I didn't, I didn't even have to be able to sing, really, <laughs> which was a Brilliant. bit shocking, I thought. You yeah, know. But... but still, yeah, it's going to let, let me get a little foot in, I suppose, or at least audition. So I go to this audition two weeks later because he's given me two songs to learn, two Sister Sledge songs. And I get there and there's another girl who the only two of us auditioning. And I swear this woman or girl, I should say, looked the part. Her hair was about two foot high, back combed to the to Helen back. Yeah. Um, she had a little leather mini on, six inch stilettos. I looked like a tramp next to her. I had a pair of furry fleece lined boots on, a pair of grubby jeans, a jumper that I slept in that I'd gone to an audition in. Um, and I was like, and she had like a book full of music. She had about a hundred, a hundred sheets of music. Cause she did the ships and stuff. Okay. Right. And I had just these two <laughs> pieces of music that it did given me two weeks ago. Anyway, I was like, this is a waste of time. She's, she's going to get it. Anyway, she gets on, doesn't she? And she's proper full Tina Turner mode giving it rice and darting about the stage and, you know, make it, making faces while you're singing and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I haven't got a chance. What am I, what am I doing here? So anyway, he goes, okay, thank you. Next. So I go on and I freeze and I literally stand there and, I, and I'm singing like someone who's never, ever sung a song ever in their whole life. Right. But it's the first time I'd ever used a microphone. And it was the first time I'd ever sung with a live band. Mm -hmm. So the fear gripped me pretty badly. So much so that he goes, well, can you dive about a bit? Like do a bit of dancing or something. And then I started doing that. You know, that dance you do at weddings when you're a kid where you just dance from, you just move one leg from side to side. Oh, I can see it. I can see it in my head. I, I'm, I'm doing it, Asan, while I'm talking. <laughs> it was abysmal. And my voice was cracking all over the place. And he goes, right. okay." Now he's got his head in his hands. Sort of like, <laughs> and I'm like, the shame. I'm absolutely burning up the shame. Anyway, he comes over and he goes, um, okay, thank you. That's it. That's it. So I'm like, shit, get your, get, your, get your bloody coat and go home, right? So I'm walking over to my coat. I'm actually trying to sneak out because I don't want to hear anything else. Um, and he goes, where are you going? I says, well, I'm going because I've not got it. He goes, no, you've got it. Uh, <laughs> so so that's how I started so I started off singing doing cabaret and I've got no shame in saying that because cabaret singers go out and they earn a living totally. working in some of the toughest clubs luckily we didn't have to do that because we went to all mecca venues that were like you know your Roxy's and your Ritz's that just had new lighting installed and were like super clubs those are the kind of clubs that we, we did and we went up and down the country and I did it for probably about a year and a mm. half um, with a cassette and there was four of us in the group and I learned so much doing that so much we'd never uh, right well put it this way my when we got sacked because obviously we got sacked because we were all too opinionated um really you <laughs> opinionated Denise can you believe that I can't believe that mate I can't believe that you know the man actually said to me you know your you know your problem you're too opinionated <laughs> and I went and so I went and <laughs> so what you know oh. so basically by doing this cabaret for a year and a half it almost feels like it was my training for what was about to come next yeah because then 
literally the day we were sacked, three weeks later, I was at the Apollo, well, not the Apollo, I was at Wembley Arena um, supporting a band from America called Maze with a band that I was singing with called Fifth of Heaven. So I had two weeks to learn 15 or so songs. Tell us about Fifth of Heaven. So Fifth of Heaven um, was a, a soul band from Manchester. Uh, I thought they were brilliant. And basically they'd already done two support gigs with Frankie, not Frankie Beverly, with uh, Alexander O'Neill and Freddie, Freddie, Freddie Jackson. That's okay. it. He were big soul singers yep. around, around that time. <clears throat> and they'd accepted another tour, but the singer had just left them. Funny enough, funnily enough, the singer that just left them was a girl who I started out doing the cabaret singing with, oh, wow. which was, it's just bizarre, absolutely bizarre. And even more bizarrely, before I even got that job, I remember being at um, a, a concert at the Apollo and we were watching one of my all-time heroes of singing, Luther Vandross. Yeah. I remember sitting there and I said to the guy that I was with at the time, so do you know what? I'm going to sing here one day. And he went, shut up. Just watch the gig. Right? Be, quiet. Be quiet. No, you're not. I said, I am. I was adamant. And you know, when you're talking, it's like when you're trying to take shoes back that the heel's broken to the shop and you're adamant you're getting your money back. Yeah, it was yeah, that yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's that kind of feeling. I was like, I am going to be singing on this stage one day. And I went cold. I had chills and everything. And three weeks later, I was on that stage. So part of this um, maze tour, there was a nine-date tour. It was two nights at Wembley Arena, and we did two nights at the Apollo. And then we did um, we went to the Hammersmith Palais, and there was a couple of others as well. So that came true, which was the weird, another weird thing that I was actually at the Apollo. I didn't think it happened that bloody quick, but mm. you know, how did that how did that affect you? That sort of you know. That seems like a pretty big leap to go from mecca venues. No matter, because I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine you must have felt like a rock star when you did the mecca venues because they're all brand new. And do you know what I mean? Not really. No, it really? was just no. You know what I used to think? I used to think, why are people dancing to us when the real record's going to come on after? Wow. That's what I used to think. So I, I never really took anything as anything big. I was just glad to be, see my whole theme is I'm just glad to be singing. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sort yeah, yeah, yeah. So I never really thought like that. I just thought it's strange that people would still want to dance to us. And then the real record by the real performer would play after us. And I just thought that was weird. So then the, the fifth of heaven tour must've been, that must've felt like something. It did in the sense that, because right, okay, so I'm on stage and we're doing the sound my very first sound check. By the way, this is the very first gig with the band as well. I'd never sung with live with them before. Wow. So I'd done two weeks of rehearsals and then we were at Wembley. Sort of. <sighs> and <laughs> I remember being on stage and I felt all right. I didn't feel any nerves. And I think coming from doing the Ritzy gigs and what have you, you you've got this, well, you're just going on stage to perform. Yeah sort of thing yeah feeling about it all and obviously you look out of uh, on the from the stage at Wembley and it's absolutely massive it's like an enormous dome as they say in Spinal Tap and I'm stood there and I'm singing and um 
I stop mid-singing and I say to the bass player, can you do us a favour? Can someone move these boxes for me? Because they're in my way. Because when I'm when I'm dancing about and stuff, I, I want to be able to, you know, move. They're in my way. And he went, you're going to need them. And I'm like, why? What is it? It's your monitor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, because we never used monitors when we did the cabaret stuff. And I'm like, what's a monitor? He said, you're going to need that to hear yourself. And I'm like, I will be able to hear myself. No, he said, this is Led Zeppelin's PA in Wembley. You're going to need that to hear yourself. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to trust him because they've done gigs before. Mm. And that's what you do when you're a novice. You trust someone who's got more yep. knowledge of the situation. So I, tr- I said, okay, the boxes can stay. <laughs> <laughs> the boxes will be helpful. The, the boxes might be helpful. And then I remember walking out onto stage and still being fine until about the third song. And then my, one leg started shaking. And it was it was almost as if my body was trying to tell me, look where you are. Mm. And I'd been fighting it, I reckon, throughout the day. And I'd, and it all just caught up with me. So then I did have to dive about a bit then to like, so you couldn't see the leg shaking. <laughs> but, movement, yeah. movement helps you to stop being nervous. Do you know what I mean? That's it why really we pace does. when we are nervous. It, it's, exactly. uh, I guess it's human nature. So how do, you, how do you end up in Primal Scream? I mean... You, was a certain ratio before Primal Scream? Yes, it so was. Let's let's talk briefly about. So, who are a certain ratio? Because they're a band who I love, but maybe some of our listeners won't know who they are. So, a certain ratio, um, or ACR, as they're lovingly also known, um, was signed by Factory Records by Tony Wilson, mm-hmm. and they were, they were managed by Rob Gretton. Yep, and they they were sort of like the funkier side, if British funkier punk side of factory records yeah. um great, great musicians and seemed to more 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 so have a cult following i felt at the time i mean i didn't know anything about acr when i was singing hmm. and all right and it was only because of a guy that i met who introduced me to them that i got to know about them and he even said i think he even said to me i think you should come and sing with this band um because that, that, they're asking about female singers and stuff. So come and see them. So I went to a gig and I thought they were absolutely horrendous. <laughs> I was like, I just thought they were awful. I, I, I remember thinking the drummer's all right. No, the drummer's really good. But I thought, no, this, no. Don't forget though, right? I'm coming from a soul background. Of course, of course. So this is like, this might as well have, been I don't know what it could have been it might as well just been something in another language to me which is what it was it was so different so thank god I've got the kind of mind that can process things and go well it's different but let's have a look you know at the time I didn't but obviously I caught up with that as time went on Mm. Um, and basically uh, I remember them calling me up and asking me to come and do some recording with them and I said no, but I said no because I was busy doing something with someone else. And I believe that if someone asked me to do something, the first person that asked me is who my loyalties to. Yeah, sort of thing. Which they they tell me this story because I don't remember saying no, but they they tell me this story that yeah you you turned us down, um, but we respected that because it meant that it showed that you had loyalty. 
you know, sort of thing. Yeah. But ACR, they're, they're <clears throat> fabulous, but they're absolutely fabulous band. Great musicians, great songs, and they're very important to Manchester's musical history. Very much so. I think. Mm. Very important. What was um, being signed to to Factory like? Before we get into Primal Scream, what was what was that like? What was Tony Wilson like? Here's the thing. You see, I did a really deep intake of breath there. Mm. Um, I didn't know Tony Wilson. Okay. The first time I spoke, whenever I saw Tony Wilson, he never spoke to me. Whenever he saw me with a certain ratio, he never spoke to me. Okay. So, and I'm the, I'm the kind of person whereby if you don't want to speak to me, I will live. That's cool. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I yeah live, totally. You know, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, I'll live. Um, the only time he spoke to me was years later, and I think this was the first time he ever did. Um, first and only time was I was it was City Life were were closed were ending, so they did a, a goodbye to City Life party oh, at I the comedy that. store. Yeah, right. And I was asked to perform at it because I was just starting to do a bit of acoustic stuff then. Mm. Um, so I went along to that, and I, I did a, like a couple of songs. And I remember being in the green room, and Tony had these this dog. I don't know how you pronounce it. Why Marama? Way Marama. No idea. They're sort of mink coloured with piercing blue eyes. Gorgeous dogs um, there. Anyway, so he was down in the green room with this dog. And I I just, I didn't say anything to Tony. I said something to, about about the dog. And I went, what a beautiful dog. Right? And then he just said, well, that's the thing with beautiful things. They're also very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Get out, Tony Wilson. Oh, what a legendary quote. Isn't it? Now, I didn't think that meant anything to do with me because I don't see myself as beautiful. So I'm thinking, well, he's not talking about mm. me. This must be something to do with his private life, mm. right? That's what I thought that that was something to do with. Um, but that's the only thing he ever said to me. Wow. I know, ever. But that's a great story. That's a... Uh... Is it? That, that's an absolutely <laughs> cracking story. I, I do love that. I do love that one. I'm surprised that you didn't deck him. Um, no, no, because I didn't take it personally. Um, mm. I thought he's not, he's always not talking about me. So. Yeah. And that's, well, I mean, I, I, I want to say I never met him. I think I met him once, but you know, it was one of those late at night things, but his reputation definitely, uh, definitely preceded him. But I do think that, you know, for all of his, for all of his madness, and we talked about this before we uh, before yeah. we started recording, for all of his madness and all that, he was he was staunchly Mancunian and, and Factory yeah. kind of remained that way. And you know, putting aside whether he was a good businessman or not, he was a good he was a good um, marketing man for Manchester. Yeah. And I think Amazing. a lot of people have come subsequently who probably consider themselves professional Mancunians, but you know haven't necessarily done as much as he did for the city, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It should never be underestimated what he's done yeah, or what he did for Manchester. Never, because he was a shining light in that sense. Definitely. And I just not, if, not just music, the arts in general. Absolutely. Well. That's what I was going to say. Just for the creative yeah. community in Manchester. Absolutely. Um, he was he was a champion of the creative community as a whole. And I think that's yeah. a big thing. Um, Absolute respect for that, yeah. Mm. So... Primal Scream. I mean, yeah. Let's talk about how, firstly, how do you end up in Primal Scream before we get to the good juicy bits? 
how do I end up in Primal Scream? Well, I suppose, basically, I'm part of a group of musicians and singers that have had, I've got like a second home at Tariff Street Spirit Studios, yeah. which is now SSR, SSR mm-hmm. um, School of Teaching or whatever. And John Brakel, the guy there, he was like, it was like our second dad. And anything, if there was ever any anyone doing a session or something, it'd say, oh, I know someone who could sing on this. Or I know someone who could play on this. Um, so I remember one day uh, there was a band in there called Hypnotone. And Hypnotone was Martin Mittler, who now incidentally does the sound for the Kooks, and Tony Martin, who was a name about town and a bit of a, a computer wizard, IT wizard kind of guy. Martin Mittler was in Interstellar, right? Yes, him. Boom. Okay, cool. Yes, Sorry. yes, yes. The same Martin Mittler. It was him and Tony Martin. They were Hypnotone. Mm. And I'd gone in to do a tune with them. They would—they just signed to Creation as well. And Creation was starting to do more. Well, they had a dance label that they were putting dance music out on. And Tony Martin was part of that. So I went down, sang this song um, called Dream Beam. And I remember when I got the track back thinking, what have they done? Because they put my voice through, obviously, processors and effects. So I sound, so my voice would go really high in this song and like a chipmunk and then really low. But when you stood back and listened to the track, it's, it's a good track. I can't like, what they've done is really good. It's innovative. So I let them off with that. <laughs> um, so through Hypnotone, Tony Martin, he was also doing some production and programming with Primal Screen. So when they said that they had a track that um, Bobby couldn't sing, he said, I think I know someone who could sing this, this track. So we were then doing a PA with Hypnotone at Shoom in London, legendary Shoom. Yeah. And the, and the, one of the main reasons as well was so that guys from Primal Scream could come down and check me out. So where they're doing our thing, and I remember at the end of, you know, what we'd done, I remember meeting Innes, and I think Duffy was there as well. And I remember Innes was like on the phone to Bobby, get down here now. I think we found the fucking singer for this song. <laughs> get down here now sort of thing. Um, and then so that's how that came about. Okay. So it was like. We, we, there's this particular song that we want you to sing on, which was Don't Fight It, Feel It. Mm. And I remember going to London to record it and only two people turned up. And it was wow. like, what's going on here? <laughs> only the bass player, Henry, and Toby, the drummer, turned up. And it was really weird. You know how you, when you just look at people and it's not what you're expecting. I don't, know what I, I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't this. So Henry and Toby turn up and I'm thinking, Oh, right. That's what some of them look like. I wasn't expecting, you know, they looked really, well, I'm just going to be truthful. I thought they looked like farmers. You're right. And the only reason why they look like, the only reason they look like farmers is because of the big woolly jumpers that they had on. Hmm. It's that kind of look, you know, that kind of rustic, I should say. Rustic, rustic. that's a polite way of saying it. I like that. Yeah, they look rustic, right? So, but no one turned up. So we had to reschedule the date again. So I remember going back to London again and 
they still they all everyone turned up this time but you know some people turned up two hours after some people turned up three hours later it was and it was like all right can we start now throb who i remember robert young who's sadly not with us anymore the guitarist when he turned up bearing in mind it was it wasn't warm when this when we were doing this second session he stripped off to just and was just walking around the studio topless Okay. And I'm like, right, I've, bear in mind, I'm coming from a soul thing. I've just been doing a bit with ACR, because I think I've done stuff with ACR about a year or so before Primal Screen. Okay. So I'm used to, you know, people just being normal. <laughs> well, you've got some experience with kind of indie knobheads, but, you know, they're still pretty normal. ACR is still pretty normal, and then you end. Yeah, up, then you go to yeah. Primal Scream, and, and it's, it's like a whole new world, <laughs> like an absolute whole new world. Um, so we we do the session; it's great, and you know, okay. And that's how I looked at it. I didn't look at it that it was going to turn into anything more, mm. um, which it then did do. You know, was um, that a gradual thing, or was that was gradual, there? Like, yeah, okay. It was gradual because they did. I I found that Primal Scream didn't have. There was a plan, but it was a chaotic plan that went. Well, hang on, we're not doing that now. We're doing this. Right. So even though things might have been in place, things always changed as well. Mm. You know, it's like Screamadelica was recorded after Screamadelica was released, the title track, and is not on Screamadelica. But there's a song called Screamadelica. Yeah, yeah. See what I mean? So Absolutely. nothing. It, it just happens when it happens, basically. Mm. But do you know what? For all the kind of, because obviously there were headaches, right, um, being with this band, but for all the headaches, the absolute good times outweigh all the shite that, and I'm talking about then, not now, all the shite that could have happened then, all the good times ruled. Mm. So, well, tell me a little bit, because, I mean, the thing that I find curious, I guess, is that, when we talk about your journey to Primal Scream, it's very unprimal Scream in a way, if that makes sense. It's like you're almost, I want to say that you're almost coming from different planets, yeah? Yeah. Um, and you're, you're kind of thrown into this situation, and they are very much big, big characters, or they were yeah. <clears throat> all of them. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about that that journey with Primal Scream, from Screamadelica to, to Give Out and Don't Give Up. The kind of You must have... I wonder whether at the end of that, your you yourself feel very different as a human being to the person that went into that, or whether you remain completely unaffected by that journey. Um, I, no, I, I wasn't unaffected at all. I was very affected. <laughs> um, I, I tell you what, the journey did tell me a lot about and it's not necessarily about the band it's about people outside the band yeah. is that there are a lot of knobheads out there i yeah. met more knobheads than i could shake a stick at music right? business people or music just... just music business people music people hangers on don't get not all of them but i met more of them than i would do say with acr mm. or when i was in manchester doing you know working out of spirit or whatever um there just seems to be another level of knobbedness yeah kind yeah. of thing um and because of the i think because of the way i've been brought up my mum's always taught me to be true to myself um you don't have to jump off a cliff because everyone else is um and just be who you are you know you don't don't get me wrong 
sometimes you, you want to rebel and you do things just to see what would happen. But I don't need I don't need to jump off a cliff to know that I'm going to break my legs at the bottom or yeah. possibly not even live. You know, so you weigh these things up. I remember one night um, there was a, we were at a gig and one night I pretended that I'd started doing cocaine. Right. <laughs> And I don't know how anyone even fell for it because I've never. <laughs> Anybody t- who knows Denise is going what? Exactly. Okay. Right? I've, I've never touched cocaine in my life, ever. Right. But so I remember we were at a gig one night. This was on the Depeche Mode tour gig, which was three months of absolute joy, hell sometimes, but mainly joy. Right. So one night, one one afternoon, we turn up at this venue and we're backstage. And basically, you know, the, the drugs are being chopped out, as they say. Um, I learned lots of new references and terms that I'd never even heard before in my life around that time as well. And I remember going dead calmly and I'm messing about, obviously. Go on then. I was like, go on then what? Chop me one out. <laughs> and it's like, what? It was It's like a film, you know, everyone turns their head. Yeah, yeah like in absolute disbelief and it's like what said you heard chop me one out i I should have got an oscar for this performance right d don't do it d d don't do it don't do it that's my scottish (laughs) (laughs) and i was like i said and i was acting all agitated because i thought well isn't that how you act when you're on coke all agitated i said chop me one out now giving it all the full BAFTA, Oscar, everything, yeah? Oh, my God. And as it's been chopped out, they're looking at me. T, don't do it, please, I beg you. They were literally begging me not to do it. And I'm like, right, wrap it up, because I don't want it now. Because obviously I'm not going to take it, am I? Uh, wrap it up, and I'll keep it for later. Oh, my God. I can't. I, 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 don't want you to go down this road. So even though they were on the rocky road, they, they still cared that they didn't want me to be on it, right? Mm. But because I was so adamant that I wanted it, they obviously carried on, you know, giving it to me sort of thing. And then, so I, I, I literally grabbed the wrap off him and walked out the room. And then I couldn't keep it up because I, I knew his heart had, like, sung. I, I walked straight back and I went, I'm only joking. Thanks. <laughs> Fuck for that! Fucking hell! It was like, <laughs> yeah, you would, you would, mate. Your your voice was the glue that was probably keeping a lot of that stuff together at the time. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a there was a lot. I remember the very first tour um, that I did with them. Um, it was a European tour, and on the Sunday, so we got back on the Saturday, early Saturday, sorry, late Saturday, mm-hmm. and on the Sunday morning, I get a phone call from McGee. Alan McGee calls me and he says, um, uh, Denise, please, all I'm asking you is just stay with the band. We'll sort the drug problem out. Because this tour, I remember, there was like literally a dealer for every person. Wow. In the dress, in the dress, that's how it felt in the dressing room. That's how it felt. And I remember um, travelling across the border with one of the dealers and not knowing that the dealer had been told to get out of the car before we get to the French border, right? So the dealers, well, pocketed the money, not got out of the border because they've given the money to get on a train, 
right? Because they don't want them crossing the border with me and the guy from the record company. But they've not done that. They've stayed with us. We've been told to get out of the car at the border, um, been searched. Oh, no, they, they brought out an old dog that had, like, grey whiskers, right, to have a sniff round sort of thing. And then the, one of them said to the other, should we strip search them? And because of the record company guy, you could interpret what they were saying. Um, apparently it was said that, nah, some of them look a bit dirty. Just let them go on with, you know, obviously the dealers, not me. Right? Mm. Um, so we then get back in the car. And as we get in the car, it's literally like two minutes. The shock of it all, I'm like, oh, my flipping God, that was awful. Bloody hell. Can you, oh my God, Jesus. It was all, I was like that. And then the guy behind me, the dealer, mm. there was two of them, yeah? The guy behind me goes, fucking hell, it was close, wasn't it? Lifts up his top. And I swear to God, there's like an A4 size slab of Coke oh. attached to his, sellotape to his stomach. Wow. Now, can you, can you imagine my face? I could, I could, um, is he still alive or did you just uh... well I swear for the rest of the journey you know when you're so full of rage that you can't even speak mm. I couldn't even speak and then we got to the hotel because we, we were going to Paris we got to the hotel and it all just came out I literally walked through the, the doors of this hotel going that fucking rat I went mm. absolutely ballistic that was put me in a fucking car with some you know i went absolutely mental and then it was then i found out that he was supposed to get out wow which made it even worse yeah so i get a phone call so we that was the last gig that of that tour mm. um, and then like i said on the sunday mcgee says denise please i'm begging just stick with them uh we'll sort out the drug thing um but i'm just begging you just stick with them you know so that's before and, give out and don't give up isn't it that before give out, yeah, that's screaming delicate at all. So that's pretty early on. I feel as though if I start asking you about the recording of give out but don't give up, it'll become a whole other podcast that might require four I think, hours. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, <laughs> I think we'll save that for the next time you you come on the pod. But what I'm curious about oh, is coming back. Yeah, definitely coming back, mate. We can't oh, cover wow. everything in one podcast. It's never going to happen. <laughs> Thank um, you. Uh, what I want to know though is because we, I mean, I guess we both saw the kind of scene, for want of a better word, in the 90s, yeah? Yeah. Um, what, what are your impressions? I mean, it, if you look back on it, in, it felt like a really vibrant time uh, for British music. Or at the time, it felt like that anyway. Yeah. Did, firstly, did it feel like that for you? And do you, do you view that time with any nostalgia? Always. Mm. I always view that time with nostalgia because it, it was a good time. Yeah. Um, it almost those times almost feel like what's happening today, but in a different way with the event of social media. People are doing things on their own now. They're not necessarily relying on a record company to be able to put themselves out there. But just for the spirit of people picking up instruments, um, singing and getting out there and wanting to be part of a band or perform on their own or how, however it is they want to get the creativity over it. That's how it felt back in the nineties. Mm. Was was there a? Um, I mean, it it was a journey that involved a lot of people 
because if you look at all the different bands, everybody knew each other and everybody more or less socialized with each other. Did you feel the com- the, the sense of community? Um, I don't want to say as an outsider, but you, you see, you see what I'm saying. You, you see the, do, yeah. the the angle that I'm that I'm coming at from yeah. because in a way, you know, it was kind of, you know. The, the Bobby Gillespie's and the Liam and the Knowles and, you know, that Britpop scene, it was very white and it was very, you know, skinny white boy. And yeah. and you were very much, uh, and like you say, like the stories with touring with Primal Scream who, you know, let's face it, they like to party and that's not yeah. really where you come from. Like, how how was it for you? See, I like to party, but not like that. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, mean, I'm, yeah. I should I should rephrase that because um, yeah. uh, I've been on a rum drinking session with you before. <laughs> <laughs> An overproof rum drinking session. Um, well, it was it's right. If you know who you are, you know what's going to suit you and what's going to fit you, and what isn't, and what works for you, and what doesn't. And I could easily. No, I couldn't actually. That's a lie. I couldn't easily have slipped into it because I'm not that kind of person and I never have been. I, f- I felt for other people, though, that did slip into that sort of hedonistic style mm. of living and got really scarred by it. Mm. So, so much so that they didn't want to do music ever again. Um, but thankfully, they, they still do. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't really. I wasn't involved in any of that. Howard saying that though, once I realized I could drink alcohol and sing, that was a game changer. Game that was a game changer. Absolute game changer. Um, Cause then I was like throbs buddy at five in the morning at some club. I remember one night he goes, let's just stay here and get a flight tomorrow. And I'm like, nah, let's, let's just go back. It's quarter to six in the morning. Yeah. Um, we're, we're gigging tomorrow. Let's just get on the bus and not mess about with planes and stuff, yeah? Because knowing our lot, we would be the two that didn't make it because we took the flight, you yeah. know, sort of thing. So, but yeah, one, yeah. Once I realised I could sing, um, it, that 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 was great. <laughs> pick a couple of pick a couple of kind of big '90s memories, like in in that. You know that you know the, the the period in time I'm talking about from ninety two to yeah. maybe 90, 97, 98. Pick a couple, pick a couple of big kind of memories or a couple of anecdotes that you think you know me, that I that are part of me. Yeah, that are part of you. Well, one main one has got to be Reading Festival, mm-hmm. um, and it was Primal Scream. It was the Orb. Um, that. Was it, and we'd just come off the Depeche Mode tour as well. Right. Um, so we had Dave Garn on stage with us. We had Mick Jones from The Clash on stage with us. That was a massive memory. I suppose that's the first time I actually felt like, right, I don't know. Right, for me, I know for a fact that I do possess imposter syndrome, right? Yes. So even when I'm at Reading Festival, I'm going, oh, wow. Oh, that's us on the big screen, you know. Being, but at the same time, I'm going, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we, what are we doing? How, why, how, why, what, when, where? It's and, as, and I'm quite glad I do have it because it does keep you grounded because you never quite believe. It's like Ellen White scoring goals for England. She, she never quite believes that she scored a goal. You know, plays the Man City as well, which is why I love her reaction. Yeah, which is why I love her reaction mm. to scoring. It's a bit like that for me. It's like I can't quite believe where I am or what I'm doing, but I've learned to not look like that now. <laughs> is that a Mancunian thing, do you think? 
Do you know what? I think it is. But then again, we say that, but then look at the arrogance of like people like Noel and Liam. Yeah, but come on, you know that that's, I mean... Yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, you know, true. I mean, you know as yeah. well as yeah, I do that. Like, you're yeah. talking about two of the most insecure men in the world, and that's part of the. Do you know, it's. It, I've. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, right? But I've always thought that part of what made us so gobby and so obnoxious was the fact that we had massive amounts of imposter syndrome, and you never really felt that. You know, how do you get noticed? Well, by being really loud, because. Otherwise, nobody's going to notice you. Say outrageous things. No, otherwise, See, nobody's. I, well, I feel the opposite to that because I don't feel gobby and obnoxious. So there must be two strains of, of imposter syndrome then, and I'm not part of that strain because I I can't stand obnoxious or anything like that. I can't mm. bear. Um, and I I don't even think. Well, I know I'm not. I'm not even an extrovert. I'm I'm actually introverted, and I've had to learn to be an extrovert. I've had to learn to go up on stage and sing and feel like okay i can do this yeah. i've had to learn that yeah you know and it's it's still ongoing i still and the nerves before a gig and with my guitarist as well twem are unreal you wouldn't believe it i mean then then we go on stage and it's like well they don't care about anything they're just getting on with it but before it a bag of nerves wow absolutely yes Wow. Absolutely. Where I feel like I've got to go to the toilet now. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm sorry. I cut you off when you were talking about Reading. So what was the other one? Obviously you do, you headline Reading and that was a massive kind of moment. What's the other big nineties moment? If you had to pick one that. I I can't not pick the first appearance with Primal Scream on Top of the Pops. Because as a kid, Top of the Pops was our holy grail. Mm. Right, every Thursday night, right in front of the telly, and you know we we were so lucky back then, right? Because I remember listening, just going off topic a little bit, a, a bit. I was listening to the Top Forty rundown. I'd, I'd never listened. I've not listened to it in years, and I caught it the other night by chance. And what was absolutely startling to to hear, for, you know, what I was hearing, everything sounded the same. There was no diversity. When we were kids, the top 40 was full of punk, new wave, ska, um, pop, obviously, a bit of jingly jangly guitar, a bit of schmaltz, a bit of comedy. We had everything. Everything was covered. Mm. Whereas now it all just seems to be one big globule, the top 40, of globulness. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great way to describe it. (laughs) <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean? Where's the diversity that represents everyone in this? In this, but it doesn't. And I know it's just the way it is, and things have changed. If you want to hear that, you go to your other chart and you hear it. Yeah. I get all that. It's a bit. It's very much like America with their black American chart and their country chart and their. Do you know what I mean? Back mm. then, when we were kids, we had it all in one chart. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I guess that you know it. It's one of those things where it's, I, I agree with you that when I, when I think back to my childhood, popular music felt much more diverse. But I think yeah. that's because we had less, I think there was, a, there was a responsibility within the industry because we just had less access, you know what I mean? Where are you yeah, going to find yeah. music if you don't find it through yeah. the mainstream, whatever the mainstream Absolutely. is? Whereas now with the internet, I mean- Yeah, that's it. Like I don't need, I can't remember the last time I listened to the radio because I don't need to listen to the radio. I no. can find new mu- music in in different ways and in 
in different places. Um, hey, a little bit of a on the spot question of all the people oh, God, you've worked no. with. Well, I'm just <laughs> I'm 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 interested. Of all the Go people on. you've worked with, who was the most interesting as a person? As a person? Yeah. So who's the artist that you work with who, as a person, you kind of walked away going, that was a really cool, interesting, smart person? Okay, right. Obviously, it's everyone. Because I only work with, I, I like to think I do anyway, try and work with people who are interesting, right? Um, and whose music that I really feel. But... And it's obvious I love everything that I've ever worked on. This is my disclaimer, right? Mm. In case anyone I've worked with is listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've loved you all. I've loved you all. But I tell you one person who really, really impressed me, right? Because it's not quite what I thought I was going to hear or get was Michael Hutchins. I was hoping you'd say that because I wanted to talk oh, right. to you about Michael. Oh, really? And I didn't right. know how to bring it. Psychic. And so I was like, look at that. Because I, I, I'm going to say this. I love that solo record that you made. I really, it's great. I remember when it came out, just being like, "Yeah, okay, that's Michael Hutchins, but that's really fucking cool record." Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about him. Well, wow, uh, you know when I, he was amazing. I, right, you know when you meet someone and you just go, because I can be a bit of a funny one, right? Around, not that you'd know, right? Around people, mm. but you know when you meet someone and you go, "I like you." instantly i instantly liked him right mm. and he was kind he was funny he was thoughtful he was just an absolute gentleman and i don't know if that well probably his buddhism probably helped a lot with his character um, you know because he was a man of peace and at the time it was when paula yates was pregnant when i was working on the solo album with him mm. and and uh, i remember <clears throat> first when i first walked into the studio um, there was a list on the wall and it said on one side, it said boys' names. And on the other side, it said girls' names. And I'm like, oh, what's what's this then? It said, oh, anyone who comes into the studio or asking them if they've got any suggestions for names for the, the for the unborn child. Oh. And that's what I thought. And I was like, all right, so look, can I write some names on there? And they were like, yeah, yeah, of course you can. So obviously I wrote Denise. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I, and I wrote Gladys as well, right? Mm. And the reason why I wrote Gladys is because every name on this list was Velvet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lee, Leroy with about 10 E's in the middle. Um, uh, uh, do you know what I mean? Potpourri. Every, every name was out of this world. So I just wanted two grounded names on there, Denise and Gladys, right? Or if it's a boy, Dennis, mm. <laughs> on this list. But he was absolutely wonderful you know uh, tell me a few stories that I, I don't think I would ever repeat out of respect to be honest mm. um but he was absolutely a great voice what a performer um I know that his time within excess he, he was a little bit unhappy he sort of touched on that a bit um he touched a bit on his family life as well but you could tell that the way he was talking it was all coming from a place of caring not bitterness, a place of caring when he did speak about these things. And I just thought he was an absolute superstar. Absolute. And because people do ask me, well, oh God, because he's dead fit and, and rah, rah. And yeah, he is dead fit. He was dead fit. But when I was doing that, 
he was going through his phase of, you know, the thick black Joe 90 glasses. Yeah, yeah. His hair was really dark. He almost looked like a, a goth or emo. He mm. almost looked like that. So it wasn't as um, sun-kissed, you know, golden sort of streaky hair that he was with. So it wasn't an instant, like, swoon kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the person inside absolutely spot on as a person I, I thought he was a br- i thought he was brilliant i'm really glad I'm, you said that because i've never asked you that um you I, I know a couple of people um who worked with him who absolutely adored him and it's always really interesting when you kind of build up ideas of how you perceive people to be yeah um because i'm not sure I, in fact i know that i would never have had him down as as that kind of zen and that much of a nice bloke but everybody who worked with he him was. said that so and that's, that's only really five. Cool that's only five. Well, that's only five days as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, um, I, one thing that I t- that he did in the studio that we well, did lots of things that just really impressed me. But you could tell he's one of those people that if you were in trouble, he'd have your back. Yeah. Um, we were in the because stu- Andy Gill was producing this album, you know, Gang of Four. Yep. And Andy Gill's got a certain style in the studio when it comes to producing. And there was a, there was something that he was trying to get me to sing. And I said, because I'm one of those singers whereby just because I'm doing a session for you doesn't mean you can tell me to do anything you want. And if it sounds shit, I ain't doing it. It's mm. as simple as that. Because once it's down there, I sound shit for everyone to hear because it's your vision. Um, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> anyway, so there was this, <laughs> sex, this line that he wanted me to sing. He wanted me to sing it in a certain way. And... It just sounded a bit too barbershop raga for me, right? And I was like, uh, it doesn't it doesn't sound quite right that. Well, can you just sing it so I can hear it? And I was like, well, no, because you'll use it then. <laughs> that's your idea. You know, that's what you want me to do. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's loads of things he asked me to do that I did do, but this when I feel it, I, I and I really feel it, I've got to say something. Mm. And um Michael was just like no, if Denise feels it, then that must be, because it comes from a feeling place, right. you know, as well. If, yeah. if that's what Denise feels, we should leave that and we should let her do it her own way. And, you know, which obviously didn't go down very well. Um, but yeah, he was that kind. And he said, that's, I had nice huge. that's actually, I, I think so. If you've, you know, if you've worked with a, you know, so if you understand producer artist relationship and you kind of know, that dynamic that's yeah. that's pretty big for him to turn around and go well no she's not feeling it leave it absolutely um and then he, and then he said i had nice waveforms as well obviously you met meant actual waveforms sort of thing but there was a bit of a, a finar finar moment <laughs> no because when you when you're double tracking in a studio so you put one you know this but yeah. you put one vocal down and then you repeat it because you want it to be two voices at the same time, and each time they were they matched the waveforms matched up exactly, Beautiful. and that's from years of uh, not years but times when I've done jingles, where you have to be spot on and you yeah. have to pronounce every T and every C and every sh- you have to pronounce everything, so you have to be spot on. So all that training from years ago comes into great use when you're double tracking. And he was like, oh, wow, she got fucking great waveforms. <laughs> and that's that a great Aussie that. accent. I thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, he, was, he was lovely. He uh, was lovely. 
Amazing. Um, hey, listen, we've done an hour. I'm not going to let you go without making you do one, two, three, four, five, six quick hits, right? Oh, we discussed this before, and so you're just going to you're just going to do them. You promised me you'd do them, so I'm not going to let you go without doing do I, them. How truthfully do I have to? How truthful do I have to be, mate? You gotta be honest. You're talking to me. Do you know what I mean? It's not. Oh, yeah. This, and I'll not be anything else. Yeah, this is not the enemy. You gotta be honest with me, right? You ready? Talking of the enemy, I always preferred the melody maker. Go on. Go on, good girl. Enemy or melody maker? Melody maker. <laughs> Liam or Noel? Liam. Johnny or Mars? Neither. Bernard or Hooky? Bernard. Gretchen or Tony Wilson? Gretchen. Ian or John? Ian or John who? Ian Brown, John Squire. <laughs> Ian. Go on. Roberto or Pep? Pep. Yes. There endeth my podcast with Miss Denise Johnson. Denise, thank you so much. Oh, you, oh thank you, Asan. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. We'll do it. We'll do it again in like six months because we we we'll, we need a podcast which involves the recording of Give Out but Don't Give Up. But as I say, we couldn't we couldn't have fit that in today. <laughs> um, listen to everybody who listened. Thank you very much for listening. Um, we'll be back with more podcasts very soon. In the meantime, as always, be safe, be well, and up the blues. Wait a minute, that was live.